guys? We are reading Genesis 4, 1 through 16 this morning, and it's Cain and Abel. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Your voice of, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Amen. Thanks to Queen B, who read for us this morning. She's one of our Canacuck leaders. So we gave her a real test, 16 verses for scripture reading this morning. She did great. You know, one of the things I love about our church that I was reminded of this morning is how hard it is to come back from that grace and peace time when you're trying to lead worship, because everybody keeps talking and hugging, and it's just wonderful the relationships people have here. And that's one of the things that is so unique about this church is we are in a community that is so tightly relationally connected. In fact, that's one of the reasons Laura and I wanted to come here, because the church is meant to thrive where there are deep and open relationships. Now, the flip side of that is if you're that close to people all the time, you're going to bump into each other. There's going to be some people taking elbows. That's just what happens when you put people all together. And the Bible deals with this reality in the second story of the Bible, right? We get enmity between God and humanity in the first story, and we get enmity between humans and each other in the second story. This is a tale as old as as time itself, is strife between people. Now, I had two brothers growing up, two younger brothers, so I maybe identify with this story a little too closely. Because when you live with brothers, you understand the Cain and Abel feud that takes place between brothers. And when my youngest brother was young, he was just a total menace. Just 
You couldn't do anything without him ruining it, it felt like. He was six years younger than I was, and whenever we would go out to dinner, our parents would take us out to dinner, guarantee he would spill drinks, he would get stuff on the floor, and so we devised a plan to occupy his time at dinner at the kids' table. And so we decided to have him go and get our refills at dinner. And, you know, he's not just going to do this out of the goodness of his heart. We started timing him to do the refills. Of course, we didn't have a watch. This was pre-iPhone. It was just like, go. And then he comes back and you're like, 11.3 seconds. That was amazing. And after a while, this kind of wore off. Like the, the general incentive of just beating your previous time wore off. And so then we had to add something else. We had to add categories. Long, medium, short, multi-drink, you know, all of these categories. And we were recording times and every time he would beat his previous time. And then that wore off after a while. And so we had to create the National Refill Association, <laughs> which, like I said, he was pretty young, couldn't really read yet, probably middle school-ish. And he... <laughs> so, some, some of you are awake. So he was young enough that he couldn't really read, and so when you would go around town and you'd see bumper stickers with the NRA, you would just say, National Refill Association. And he totally bought it. He's like, this is a way bigger thing than I thought it was. There's people that are really, really amped about this. And so then, you know, there's an Olympics for this, and there's people across the world, and there's an up-and-comer in China who's really getting good refills that you've got to beat, and for years this goes on, and finally we have to create a web page for it, and I don't know if you guys remember Zangas, but we had to create a Zanga with the National Refill Association on the top, and we're putting standings and things, and so this goes on and on, and it's just layer after layer after layer, and we have this whole world of refills, and he's the top dog, and he's kind of expecting that people will recognize him in public now because he's got this great resume of refills until one day we're in the car, and he's talking to my mom about it, and he's like, you know, I, I think I'm going to travel for the Olympics this summer in refills, and my mom was like, what? And she goes, what are you talking about again? He's like, the National Refill Association, mom, and she's like, there's there's no such thing as the National Refill Association. Of course, we're in the back seat, like, in the rearview mirror, like, no, no, go with it, be cool. But she finally broke it to him, there's no National Refill Association. This is something your brothers have been doing to you to get you to get their refills for the last few years. And he was devastated. He was devastated. <laughs> now he's in counseling, and uh, we're building back that trust between us, but... It's hard to be a younger brother. It's hard to grow up in a, in a home like that. But I tell you that story to illustrate something even deeper than the rivalry between brothers. Because this story actually isn't primarily about the relationship between Cain and Abel. This story, like the story of Adam and Eve, is actually primarily about what happens between Cain and God that spills over into the relationship with Abel. See, to understand this story, you need to read it as an explanation of how sin works. So sin is just like the National Refill Association in the sense that once you do something and it runs out of whatever prestige it had, then you've got to do something even bigger. 
And then you've got to do something even grander. And the problem with sin, as Cain comes to find out, is once you make a tiny little exchange in your heart, it unlocks a cascade of sin. See, the Bible presents sin not just as a matter of, do I choose to do something wrong or do I choose to do something right? It it might start that way, but in this story, what I want you to see is how sin actually works. Sin is a small exchange that leads to a reaction that resonates through our entire lives. So let's talk about how sin works from this story. As you know, if you've read this story before, we're only on the second page of the Bible, and things are not going well in Scripture. In fact, they're going so poorly that we've only made it to the second generation of human beings, and we get the biggie, murder, right? The one where it's like, oh, at least I didn't kill somebody. You're like, well, you kind of did. You know, this is like as bad as it gets right at the beginning of Scripture, It's the first person to die in the Bible. Sin unleashes death into the world, but at that point, Adam and Eve don't die. It's only when Cain slays Abel that we have death, physical death, enter the world. We get the first cover-up of something that has happened. We get the first murder mystery that's happened. Anybody seen Abel around? I wonder who did this. Unlike the other creation narratives in the ancient world, this creation narrative follows an interesting trajectory. If you read other creation narratives, whether those are the ancient Babylonians or the ancient Greeks, contemporaries of this kind of literature in the Bible, they all have a reverse trajectory. The gods were bad in some way, or they were battling or warring against each other, and human beings rise up to be the heroes, right? So you have the gods that are overthrown by an epic hero like Gilgamesh. Or in the ancient Greek uh, creation accounts, you have the gods who are at war with each other, and while they're doing that, Sisyphus goes and steals fire and brings it down to humanity, and they have arrived. But this creation narrative is exactly the opposite. Humanity starts out good with a good God, and their trajectory is almost straight down. It actually fits experience a little bit better than other creation narratives, because if you've lived very long, you realize that what they're talking about then and what goes on in our world now actually match. They make sense. And in this opening story with Cain and Abel, we see how God works through sin, works through broken homes, works through broken families to bring about the great truth of what Genesis is teaching us is that God himself is going to make a covering for our sin. So have you noticed that in the Bible, there aren't very many intact families? There's not very many healthy families in the Bible. In fact, after Adam and Eve fall, you don't see another mom, dad, 2.3 kids, all happy and healthy again until the first page of the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. You might say Job was a healthy family, but who wants to be Job's family, right? Nobody nobody wants to be Job's family. So from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the beginning of the New Testament, you see strife in families, you see sin, you see brokenness, you see rivalry, you see all of the things playing out then that play out now. And you see that God actually works through brokenness and sin every time. It's not just that sometimes God works through brokenness, it's Every story, God is working through broken 
people, people like Cain, people like Adam and Eve, people like Abraham, broken people who have turned their lives towards God in Abraham's case, and he's working through their brokenness. As I said at the beginning of this story, there's a subtle exchange that takes place that sets off kind of a a chain reaction in Cain's life. And the beginning of this story, I want to point out something to you. This story begins in in chapter 4, verse 1. We have Cain and Abel, and in the course of time, it says in verse 3, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So this story, and you've got to see this, this story starts with worship. This is a worship service. It's different than ours, but it's a worship service. In fact, Skip Heitzig, who's a great expository teacher, called his sermon on Cain and Abel, Murder After Church. Because what happens is that Cain and Abel go to worship the Lord, and it's at worship where the fundamental change takes place. Now, we know that Cain is a tiller of the soil. We get this information right at the beginning. Abel is a keeper of sheep. He is a rancher. Cain is a worker of the ground. He is a farmer. And they bring their respective offerings to the Lord. Cain brings something from his ranch. He brings animals, and, or Abel brings animals, and Cain brings plants. And they both come and worship the Lord, and Abel's offering is accepted, and Cain's offering is not. And as you read this story, you think, man, this is so unfair what God did here. He takes Abel's offering, he doesn't take Cain's offering. And this is this has made the commentators do all kinds of somersaults trying to figure out what this is. Is it God prefers farmer or ranchers to farmers? Is it that he just wants animal sacrifices? <laughs> the text tells us exactly what's going on here. Abel brings the first fruit of what he has. Cain brings the rest of what he has. See, Abel, it says, brings the first part of his flock and their fat portions. Abel brings the best. And in fact, he doesn't just bring the best, he brings the first, which if you're in this kind of agrarian society is really important because when you bring the first, you don't know how much there's going to be. So you don't know what your flock is going to be like this year. You probably have a pretty good idea, but you don't know. You're just saying whatever happens after this, I'm bringing the first part of it to God. What Cain did is what we often do. Once I see how much there's going to be, then I'll make a decision on how much to bring to the Lord. So there's a difference in their uh, ability to come and worship God with what they have. There's also a difference in what they value. We'll see this all through the story. Abel values God. He brings his best to God. He lays it before him, and God approves of his offering. Whereas Cain brings kind of the leftovers of his. He does not value God. And as we see through the rest of this, he makes an exchange at this worship service to say, I'm not going to worship God on God's terms. I'm going to worship God on my terms. I'm going to worship God on my terms. So God accepts Abel's offering. Now, I kind of wonder, we don't really know what this is like. I think some of us picture, you know, they both offer their offerings and fire comes down on Abel's, but not on Cain's. It probably isn't that. It probably is more like when Abel offers his offering, he communes with God and God gives him favor. He has great uh, produce. He, He sees his life thriving and Cain's life is stagnant. 
Because this is where jealousy usually arises for us, is we see the difference between somebody else's life and ours. We start to ask God, why the difference? Why the difference? This explains what Cain does next. He has a problem in his worship, and then it boils over into his relationship with his brother. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews helps us to interpret this story. In Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith chapter, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this he received approval as righteous, God himself giving approval to his gifts. We see that Cain must not do that. He doesn't bring the offering in faith. He brings the offering in self-reliance. Already we see something really important about Cain's heart in Proverbs 21, 27. It says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. How much more when it is brought with evil intent. See, one of the things you learn from Cain is going through the motions never cuts it with God. It's always about the heart. Cain brought his offering in selfishness, in wickedness, with evil intent in his heart. And Abel brought his in faith. The exchange that's made here tells us something really important about the nature of sin. In Romans chapter 1, Paul gives us almost a recap of what happens in the very beginning of the Bible. And in a famous passage, he's going to talk to us about what happens when we sin. In fact, he's going to give us what the root is of all sin. He says that because people did not honor God, in verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has revealed it to them, namely his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. Those things have been clearly perceived about God since the beginning of the world in the things that have been made. So people are without excuse. But although they knew God, like Cain did, he, he knew God, he did not honor him as God. He did not give thanks to God. But he became futile in his thinking, and his foolish heart was darkened. Claiming to be wise, he became a fool and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, sin is degenerative. It starts with a failure to worship God for who he is. Every sin begins in the heart, saying, I'm not going to worship God for who he is, I'm going to worship God based after my own image, or I'm going to worship a different God, or I'm just not going to worship at all, which is an implicit idolatry to some other God. So you, you may not identify with where Cain gets to in this story, but we've all been where Cain was in the beginning, which is a subtle movement in our hearts to worship God versus worship something else. So the text says that when this happens, Cain's face Falls. He is angry, very angry. He's probably depressed, is the way we translate this word, his face fell. And presumably, he's not just angry at his brother, because at this point in the story, we don't hear anything about that. Presumably, he's angry at God. Why did God accept his offering, and he didn't accept my offering? He lets his sin metastasize. It boils over into jealousy. It starts with idolatry. It starts with selfishness. And then it moves over into jealousy. And it would, be, it would be easy for us to dwell on the jealousy part of this, but 
we don't have time, but I will offer this as a definition. There's a biography of the life of Gore Vidal by a guy named Jay Perini. And the title of the book is, Every Time a Friend Succeeds, Something Inside Me Dies. That's jealousy. That's it. When somebody else succeeds, it makes Cain angrier and angrier and angrier at God. So Cain slays Abel. This is not just an attack on Abel. This is an attack on God. He sees what God likes, what God approves of, and he takes it away. And he goes and he kills Abel, and then he goes and he hides. And God comes to him, which we'll talk about in a minute. And once this starts, Cain, he just keeps digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper away from the presence of God. In ancient Jewish writings, not in the Bible, in the Talmud, in the intertestamental period, Cain becomes a kind of fascination. He becomes kind of a whipping boy for sin. They're like, we can't imagine anything more sinful than Cain. And so they start to talk about what may have happened to Cain after this story. And some of them are actually kind of funny. But, but one of them is, is very interesting what they write about this. In one story in the Talmud, a rabbi writes that God puts a mark on Cain, and the mark is a horn that comes out of the front of Cain's forehead. That he, he's like a rhinoceros. He has a horn now. And I don't know how that would deter people from wanting to kill you. But what happens is, a few generations later, his descendant, whose name is Lamech, who we'll talk about next week, Lamech is a big game hunter. He's a mighty hunter before the Lord, and he kills Cain because he thinks he is big game. He's out on a safari, he sees Cain, sees the horn on his head, he ends up killing him. And this is kind of a wild story, but it demonstrates something that was so fixated in the Jewish mind about this story. Sin, like Cain's, when you let it spiral out of control, actually takes you away from what it really means to be human. What it means to be a human created in the image of God gets harder and harder and harder to see as you let sin spiral out of control in your life. It's like Nebuchadnezzar, who's described the same way in the book of Daniel, that as he gets more and more self-reliant, he becomes more and more animalistic until he turns and repents before God. So what I want you to see in this first part of this story about Cain is that sin, once it takes a home in our heart through misplaced worship, begins to boil over into every other area. So the problem for Cain is not addressing murder or jealousy alone. The problem is not even addressing the anger that he has at God alone. The problem is getting to the root of his worship of self over the worship of God. It's like, do you remember that children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, and he's going to want like a million other things? It's really kind of a book about bad parenting, honestly. But... <laughs> You get the mouse a cookie, the moose needs a muffin, you do all this stuff. If you give, Saint, if you give Cain idolatry, then it's going to spill over into the rest of his life. But I want you to see something about the heart of God in this story. So notice that in this story, while Cain, is, his life is spinning out of control, God is not absent from Cain's life. In fact, in this story, God comes to Cain both before and after the big incident. This is remarkable. God doesn't just say, well, you know what? If you're going to be like that, then you do your own thing. God comes to Cain after he's, his face has fallen, and the Lord comes to him and he says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will be accepted. But if you do not, sin 
is crouching at your door. Its desire is against you. It is to dominate you, but you must rule over it. Can you see the compassion of God in this story? That his humanity is spinning out of control. They're doing what they want. They're not doing what he told them to, and he comes and entreats Cain and says, you don't have to do this. In fact, all is not lost. Nothing is ruined. If, if you do well, you will be accepted. If you say no to temptation, you can be restored. This is one of the first places we see forgiveness in the Bible is you've done something little wrong and something bigger is coming, but why don't you just stop the chain now? Why don't, why don't you just come back into fellowship with me? Derek Kidner, who's one of the great commentators on Genesis, says, God's concern for the innocent, which we'll see, he's, he's concerned over Abel later in this story. He's, he's, he is the defender of the innocent. But in this story, God's concern for the innocent is matched only by his care for the sinner. God's care for the sinner. It is the utmost that mercy can do for the unrepentant to go to Cain before and after his sin. In this series that we're doing, I didn't just arbitrarily pick the story of Cain and Abel. We're going through the narratives in Genesis. And what we're looking at is something that happens in the very first story in Genesis. When, when Adam and Eve sin, their eyes are opened, they know that they are naked, and they are ashamed. So they get the knowledge of good and evil because they eat from the fruit of the tree, and they realize that the knowledge of good and evil is not that great if you are evil because it makes them embarrassed and ashamed and they hide. And what they do, the Bible says, is they sow for themselves fig leaves to cover themselves. They, they make a covering to shield them from the presence of God. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at how each one of us and each one of these characters in Genesis cope and conceal and hide and curate so that they can deal with their own guilt and shame without going and being transparent before God. See, a fig leaf is anything we use to cover up our sin, to cover up the true self, to mediate between ourselves and God and other people. And what God does at the end of the Adam and Eve story is he comes and makes a sacrifice and clothes them with skins. And what he does in Cain's story and Abraham's story and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and your story and my story is he, he takes our fig leaves that are so inadequate to do what we want them to do and he gives us a covering that will last through his son. The, the narrative in Genesis is all about teaching us the ways that we creatively resist going back to the place where we are naked before God and unashamed. So these inadequate fig leaves in this story are Cain's anger, his jealousy, his murder, his cover-up. Anything he can do to try to remedy the situation without going to God is a fig leaf. And God is going to make a covering for him. God is always coming to us. He is compassionate and tender with us to come and say, why don't you get rid of the fig leaves and take these clothes instead. See, the fundamental human condition that we see in all of these stories is we need a covering for ourselves. If you have sinned before God and you don't have some kind of covering, you can't see God and live. It's impossible. A holy God cannot be around sinful human beings. So we need something to stand in between us 
and God. And Cain's response and Adam's response and our response often is, I will make a covering for myself. But God has something else in mind in this story. Jesus tells a parable about this very thing in the New Testament in Luke chapter 18. He, he tells a parable, and in the beginning of the parable, he tells us what this parable is actually about. He says, Luke says, he told a story to those who trusted in themselves. This is real, some parables are really hard to figure out. This is not a hard parable to figure out. He told them this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One of them is a Pharisee. The Pharisee is the religious person. The Pharisee is the person that has it all together. And the other is a tax collector. Tax collectors, worst of the worst. And so you've got the really good guy and you've got the really bad guy in this parable. They're just caricatures of people that everybody would say, this person probably needs no covering because they are righteous before God. This person better not get too close to the temple because there might be lightning strike. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, like this tax collector. (laughs) This is just too good. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is, God, thank you that I have been able to make a covering for myself. I've been able to do enough good things, live the right way. I have a reputation. Thank you, God, that my fig leaves are sufficient for me. Then it says the tax collector stands far off, and he doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beats his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But I've got to tell you that There's something even deeper than just be merciful to me. The word that is used here for be merciful is a word that's hard to translate into English. We we typically use the word propitiation, which nobody nobody knows what that means. That's why they don't use it in the translation. But it means that God is actually going to satisfy the penalty on your behalf. Another word would be atonement, that Somebody needs to make an atonement for me. There's a burden too great for me to pay, so I need somebody else to pay the payment. Or the wrath of God coming on behalf of sin, like Romans 1 talked about, is too strong. The punishment is too severe. I need something to stand in between me and a holy, angry God. The the tax collector comes before God, and to put it in the language of this story, he says, God, make a covering for me. For me, a sinner. God, have mercy. Give me something to cover myself from this sin. When God comes to Abel, or when God comes to Cain again, he's asking about Abel. The, The first time he comes to Cain in the story, he's pleading with him not to give full vent to what's going on in his heart. And after Cain does that, God comes back, but God's coming back now in a little bit different role than he came the first time. See, in the ancient world, murders were avenged by the family member of the person who had been put to death. So this is still this way in the Middle East today. If you go there, there are family feuds that have been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years to try to get vengeance on something that's happened to a family member. And what would happen in the ancient world is you had these families, or more like tribes or clans of people, and when somebody was murdered, the patriarch of the family, 
would go and seek vengeance, kill the person who killed, or take a person from that person's family to satisfy the debt that was owed to their family. And when God comes back, he's not just passionate in this story anymore. He is just. When God comes to Cain, he says, where is your brother Abel? His blood is crying out from the ground. His, his blood is crying out for vengeance. See, God is, is not just coming here as cosmic father. God is the patriarch of this family. He's the grandfather, if you will, of Cain and Abel. So when a murder has been committed in the family, God is coming to avenge the death of his grandchild. He's coming to set things right in Cain's world. And we should expect nothing less than annihilation from God at this point. A life for a life, a murder, needs to be justified. Cain because his heart is fully turned against God, says, am I my brother's keeper? This has become kind of a popular phrase. So I want to rephrase it. He, he essentially says here in the Hebrew, am I the shepherd of the shepherd? Am I supposed to be the shepherd of the shepherd? It reminded me, I don't know how many of you guys followed the Alec Murdoch trial, this big high-profile trial in the Low Country in South Carolina. And basically, he, he had been accused of killing his wife and his son, and he's got a million other things going on. And uh, something really powerful happened in the sentencing. So after he's convicted of this murder, the judge, whose name is Clifton Newman, was presiding over the case, and as is the prerogative in, in these kinds of trials, he, he's able to say some things to Alec Murdoch before he sentences him. And particularly, he, he's giving... Murdoch the chance to make a comment before he's sentenced. And you can hear in the judge's voice that he's pleading with him to just come clean. Just owe up to what you've done. Newman asks him, when, when will the lies stop? Once you tell one, you have to tell another and another and another. And, and when will it end? He said, it's clearly ended for the jury who just found you guilty. It's ended for the press, who prejudged this case by several years. It's, it's ended for your family. When is it going to end for you? Perhaps you believe, he says, that it doesn't matter, that there's nothing that can mitigate a sentence given the crimes that have been committed. But within your own soul, you have to deal with that. And then this is where it got really haunting. He says, I know that you have to see Paul and Maggie during the nighttime when you're trying to go to sleep. I'm sure they come to you and they visit you. And Murdoch says, all day and every night. And Clifton Newman, who had lost a son when this trial began, said, and they will. They will do so as you reflect on the last time you looked into their eyes until the lies stop. Everybody in the courtroom had to have realized that he's not just talking about Alec Murdoch here. He's, he's speaking to every person about the fundamental tenets of justice. See, the blood of Abel, it says in Hebrews, cried out from the ground to the Lord. And the cry of the blood of Abel is the same cry that this judge in, a, in an earthly way was crying out, justice must be satisfied. Justice 
will always be satisfied. It will be paid in the future or it will be repented of now, but justice will always be satisfied. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the author there says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And his blood has been sprinkled, and his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does this mean? The blood of Jesus that has been sprinkled for us cries something even greater than what Abel's blood was crying. See, Abel's blood was crying, justice must be satisfied. And the contrast here between the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and Jesus worked for us on Mount Zion. The punishment for sin is death. And Cain is racking up sins here. I I, I just went through the Ten Commandments this week to see how many commandments he broke. And I'm, I'm at five of the Ten Commandments. It would be hard to break any more of the commandments in one single stretch than what he has done, and the punishment waiting for him is death. But what the author of Hebrews points out is, There is another Abel, though, who has come. There's another innocent person. He was perfect in every way. He gave a sacrifice to God that was accepted. He lived his life worshiping him. He was killed by those who were at enmity with God, and his blood now cries out a better word. It doesn't cry out against you. It cries out for you. It says, justice has been satisfied. See, the power of Jesus' blood is it no longer cries out against your sin. It cries out that if you've trusted in Christ and you've asked it for forgiveness and the string of lies and sin and false worship has come to an end in your life, then Jesus' blood now is the covering over you that says justice has been satisfied forever. No payment left. You were a Cain, but now God sees you as an Abel. Through his righteous son who was killed, our sins put him, held him on the cross. He was in the grave, but then he rose from the dead saying, everything for those who are in Christ has been paid for. See, the end of the story is the lies never end for Cain. He doesn't repent. He does not turn back to God. God has mercy on him to keep him from being killed. He he actually takes the vengeance that he could have had and he waits He says, nobody can kill Cain, or vengeance will be taken on them. But the blood of the true and better Abel means that instead of leaving the presence of God and going into the land of wandering, we get to enter the presence of God again. So the takeaway for us from this story is back in verse 7, when God comes to Cain and he says, sin is crouching at your door. It's crouching at your door waiting to devour you. This is like the image of a lion who's getting ready to spring on their prey. It's the endless chain reaction of sin that takes place in our life. And and God says, sin is crouching at your door. But it made me think of the end of the Bible where John, writing to the churches, says, for anybody who wants it, Jesus is knocking at the door. Sin, Sin is crouching on your front step, but there's one who's knocking. For anybody who's done with the lifestyle of Cain, for anybody who's ready to bring this whole thing to an end, Jesus is knocking at the door, and his blood is payment for you. 
This morning, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to celebrate communion together. And the way we celebrate communion is we're going to come to the table, and we're going to tear off the bread, and we're going to dip it in the cup. And if you don't want to dip in the cup, we have some cups here on the table next to it. But what we're doing when we do communion is we're acknowledging what we've just talked about, that in the life of Cain, sin never came to an end. But for us, if, if we will trust in Christ, we can have our sins washed away. And you know what it says after it says that Jesus is knocking at the door? To anyone who opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and make my home with him. In a moment, if Jesus has come into your life, come forward and eat with him. And if he hasn't, if Jesus is still knocking at the door, this is a wonderful moment, not just to take this meal, but to take Christ, to, to bring the whole sequence of sin to an end in your life and to be free. And if you'd rather do that as people are coming forward to take communion, you come forward to me or to our elders who are around in the front, and you come and take Christ, and he will come and have a meal with you, and sin will no longer have its way in your life. You'll be a child of grace. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this story that reminds us that underneath all of our external strife, underneath all of the rivalry and jealousy and the things that go on in our world is a question of worship. Will we worship you on your terms? Will we give the best of what we have? Will we give our hearts and our souls to you? Father, I know so many stories in here and in my life and elsewhere where you have taken a trajectory like Cain's, and you have turned it around. So, Father, we celebrate that this morning. We celebrate that you make all things new. You redeem. Your Son is a covering for us, and by his blood, we have been washed white. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you that you haven't left us alone with our guilt and our shame, that you've provided a home for us. You are a Father to us. Father, your Spirit leads us and guides us. As we celebrate at your table this morning, Lord, we ask that you would remind us of the meal that is coming, that we will eat with you in eternity forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll have those serving communion come, come to the table of Christ.